Heavenly Father, we have gathered here this morning, I pray, each and every one of us with a deep desire to worship you. We sing to you and we pray to you and we will listen to this gospel being presented. We will take communion all with a desire to draw near to you. I ask, Father, a simple prayer this morning that you would cause a biblical fear of you out of the magnificence of who you are and the love that you have for us to rest upon this church this morning that we would be so rightly overwhelmed with who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, the immeasurable love that you've shown us through your Spirit, that we would be rightly transformed even this hour to love you, to obey you, and to follow you all of our days. I pray, Father, that you would use this passage, a simple passage, to reveal to us the love that we are called and equipped to have for one another. I'm so thankful for the saints in Damascus and those in Jerusalem that helped preserve Paul's life, that he might be the missionary to the Gentiles that you equipped him to be, that he might write two-thirds of the New Testament letters, that we might be blessed by him. I ask, Father, that we would have that same love here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church, that our love would not be a said love, but it would be a love filled with deeds, that we'd have a true care for our brothers and sisters, watching out for them, praying for them, serving them, and bringing them the honor that they deserve being disciples in you. I ask, Father, that you would help me, a sinner, proclaim the gospel through this passage and that you would cause my brothers and sisters to receive it in great faith that we might be utterly transformed by grace this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So you read the passage and you think, what's he going to preach on? Is this a simple travel log? We're going to hit several travel logs in the book of Acts. But we must remember that every single word in the Bible we believe to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, every single word is important. So we don't want to skip a section and say, you know what, last week was fantastic. I mean, it was, right? We got a chance to look at one of the most important days in the history of the church when Jesus Christ comes down from heaven and he, and he intercepts Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and he appears to him in a great light and he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul's thinking, I'm persecuting the church. Who are you? He says, it's me, it's Christ you're persecuting. But rather than Jesus putting Saul to death, which he would have justly deserved, Jesus does something extraordinary, and he does it for Saul, and he does it for his bride. Look at verse 15. We're told that he was going to make Saul his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so the event that we saw last week, the great intervention by Jesus appearing to Saul as it was a theophany, was for the purpose of the glorification of his name to us, to Gentiles, to kings and to the children of Israel. And Saul, this probably does not surprise you, he wastes no time and being this instrument. Look at verse 20. Immediately, we're told, immediately he saw proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. I imagine he went directly to the synagogue. Right? He can now see. He now knows Christ. He saw Christ. He heard Christ. He goes and he preaches Christ. 
But his conversion, it enraged the Jews and it confounded the Christians. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus to become an apostle of Jesus Christ, it enraged the Jews and it confounded many Christians. But during the early days of the ministry that we see here, Luke shows us something incredible, and I want us to get this. He shows us how in the early days of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, God used his church to protect, to love, to receive, and send Paul out. In other words, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, was not doing this on his own. God provided means, assistance, encouragement, love, and protection through the local body, through believers just like us. Believers that are called to come alongside one another, that we might fulfill the ministries that God has given us. Saints, part of God's redemptive plan has always been to have the church love and minister and serve one another, that we might, as a church, and we might individually do the work God has given us to do. You were not saved by Christ and then sent out all by yourself. You were saved by Christ into a church that we might work together for God's glory. In other words, your success, listen, your success as a follower of Jesus Christ is contingent upon the success of your brothers and sisters. It's tied to their success, and their success is tied to yours. We are members of one body. This morning, I would like for us to look at the first few years, and it really is the first three years of Paul's apostolic ministry, and I'd like us to see from the Word of God the absolute necessity of community, the absolute necessity of brothers and sisters coming along the great apostle to the Gentiles and blessing him so that he can do his work, which is the work of the church. And I'd like us to do that to see how this community works in three very specific ways. Number one, how true brothers actively love one another. How true brothers actively love one another. Number two, how true brothers actively receive one another. And then number three, how true brothers walk together in the fear of the Lord. A theme for this sermon would be this. True brothers and sisters love one another as Christ loves us. If you're truly saved and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if you are a true brother or sister in Christ, then you are equipped and called to love one another as Christ loves you. By this, the world will know what? That we are his disciples. That's how they'll know, by our love for one another. All right, are you ready? (laughs) Okay, here we go. Number one, true brothers actively love one another. Look at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, speaking of Saul. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Now when it says when many days had passed, it was actually about three years. We know that, given the timeline. We have a lot of, we can take the chronology developed in Paul's epistles and you can put together some decent timelines. So he was in Damascus after his conversion experience for about three years, preaching and teaching boldly Jesus Christ. And then, enough was enough. The Jews in Damascus said, we're not going to listen to this man anymore. We want him dead. Now, this is not the response you would want from his Jewish brethren, right? These are brothers from Abraham. You would hope that they would receive this and say, this is revelation that is true from the scriptures. Thank you, Paul, for showing us that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Or minimally, you would think that as brothers as Jewish brothers, that they would say, okay, no, we don't agree with you, 
but we're going to love you anyway. You're from the tribe of Benjamin. You were a Pharisee. You were on our side. But they don't do that. They don't embrace him, the one who breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. They say they want him dead. Verse 23 and verse 24, Luke repeats it. They want to what? They want to kill him. They want to literally kill him. This is not the expression that you will often have for someone in your life who's being very frustrating to you, and you say, maybe under your breath, or maybe out loud, which you should not, oh, I'd like to kill him. I'd like to kill him. They literally want to kill Paul. They want to kill him so much that they go and they stand at the city gate waiting for him. And we know from Galatians chapter one, it wasn't just the Jews, it was the civil magistrates there. They're taking turns, waiting at the gate. That's the only way out. Paul's in the city, he can't get out unless he comes through the gate, so they wait to arrest him and put him to death. Now, brothers and sisters, with brothers like that, with friends like that, you do not need any enemies. After fleeing from Damascus for his life, he returns to Jerusalem where the Jews welcome him in similar fashion. Now, most commentaries believe that Paul was in Jerusalem after Damascus for only about three weeks before they sent him off to Tarsus. Look at the latter part of verse 28. Paul arrives in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He, Saul, spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And there's the word again. They want him dead. So Saul comes and he picks up exactly where Stephen left off. He goes to the Hellenistic synagogues. He's a Greek-speaking Jew. And he goes and he proclaims, it says disputes, that can mean debate. He debates from the scriptures, proving that Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah that they had been waiting for for so long. Their reaction was swift and violent. Three weeks, they want him dead. Why do they want him dead? Well, we know that he's preaching and teaching the same thing that Stephen was, and they killed Stephen, right? So he's walking along that same trajectory. But to them, Saul's even worse than Stephen. Saul was on their side. Right? He was the great persecutor of the church. He was fighting for the name of Abraham, right? going out and making sure that this cult did not survive. But what happened here? He had, gone from becoming, he had gone from being the persecutor of the church to the proclaimer of Christ, the one persecuting Christ to the proclaimer of Christ. In other words, in, his mind, in their minds, he had gone to the dark side. Right? He deserved to die just like all those other Christians that, that he was once persecuting. So even though he was a biological brother of the tribe of Abraham, once a Pharisee of Pharisees, even though he was once on their side, he had turned against them in their minds, and now they want him dead. What a stark contrast. What a stark contrast to, God, to Saul's new family, his brothers and sisters in the Lord. As the Jews and the civil magistrates waited in Damascus at the, civil, at the city gates in order to apprehend him and murder him, his new brothers in Christ have another plan. Look at verse 25. His new brothers, his new family, his disciples took him by night and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now that may sound weird to you. In ancient cities, the wall actually had rooms built into the wall. And so on the outside of the wall, there was a window. And when the gates were closed, except for the main gate, that was one of the ways to get out through the window of a particular room. And so Paul's disciples, they get a long rope and there's all this discussion on how high the wall was, we don't know. But it was a long rope, and they put Paul in a basket, hopefully a pretty sturdy basket, and they lower him down that wall, and they get him onto safe ground, and he takes off for Jerusalem. Now this story, it's one of those stories that makes for a great Sunday school lesson, doesn't it? I mean, it is one. 
It's, it's a midnight escape from death. And the, 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 the disciples who loved Saul are going to put him in this basket and they're going to go through this exercise to get him out of the city to save his life. But even more exciting for you as you read this is the true love and true watch care that Saul's disciples had for him in the midst of his danger and danger to themselves for aiding and abetting someone who was wanted for death. Likewise in Jerusalem, as Paul gets there and begins to teach and preach to the Hellenistic Jews, they also want to murder him. But look at the brothers there. Verse 30, when the brothers learned this, that they wanted to apprehend him and a plot to kill him, in Jerusalem too, they brought him, Saul, down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. So the, the disciples in Jerusalem, they know this, this trend line's not good. We saw what happened to Stephen and they killed him. We don't want Paul to be killed as well. And so they get wind of the plan and they make a plan of their own. They get Saul out of the city. They send him up to Caesarea on the coast, which is about 75 miles or so from Jerusalem. And they put him on a ship across the Mediterranean up to southern Turkey, modern southern Turkey today. And they send him to his hometown of Tarsus. And he'll stay there for about 10 years. 10 years preaching and, and declaring Christ as Lord. And we're going to pick him up again in chapter 13 when Barnabas and he go on their first missionary journey. But that's where they, they leave Paul. They get him to a safe place. Dr. Luke reveals to us here how the great apostle Paul, early in his ministry, was beginning to learn what Jesus said in Acts chapter 9, verse 16. Remember, Jesus said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I mean, from the very beginning of his ministry in Damascus, Paul started to receive the suffering and persecution as a proclaimer of Christ. He's there for three years. They try to kill him. He flees to Jerusalem. He's there for three weeks. They try to kill him. This was real, life-threatening persecution. But in the midst of all this, Paul's also experiencing a radical divine love from God. That just as his old family under the old covenant want him dead, his new family under the new covenant are loving and protecting him as a brother in Christ as someone to be protected, as someone to be cherished. In other words, God was revealing to Paul experientially, right, not just by mouth, but experientially what true brotherly love looks like. First being saved out of Damascus and then being saved out of Jerusalem. His Jewish brothers, he was only acceptable as long as he towed the party line as long as he went out and did his job as persecutor of the church. But as soon as he changed, as soon as he came to Christ and began proclaiming Christ instead of persecuting Christ, well, now he was canceled. You want to talk about a cancel culture? We talk about that today. How was he canceled? Well, they were going to kill him with authority. What a contrast to the life he had in his new family with brothers and sisters now who are going to truly love him. Truly love him. Now, Paul's actions before his conversion were grievous against the church. He persecuted the church. He arrested the church. He approved of Christians, children of God, saved by grace, to be put to death. In fact, I, would, I, I bet that both in Jerusalem and certainly in Damascus that there were members of that church when he came back in that they lost family members as a result of it. Aunts and uncles, 
grandparents, children being taken off to prison and never seen again. You know, being sentenced to prison at that time was oftentimes a death sentence in and of itself. And so Paul comes into this new family and they had every reason to hold a grudge. They had every reason to say, we want justice first. But that's not what Paul gets. Paul comes into this family he had persecuted, very likely with members of that family that he had put in jail or had put to death, and he is received with the mercy and love and grace of Christ. So how, how could that possibly be? His life being threatened, and instead of them saying, let him die, right? Oh, we know what he did to us. You know what he did to my brother? You know what he did to my uncle? Let that man die. They didn't say that. They said, let's help him. Let's serve him. Let's save him, even though he had done so much harm to them. His true brothers in the Lord go to extreme measures to ensure his well-being. In other words, they had forgiven Saul's sins. They had forgiven Saul's sins as Christ had forgiven them, and they loved Saul as Christ loved them. In other words, they were living as the new family transformed by the love of God in Christ. Not what you would expect. So I ask you, my beloved, is this not how we are supposed to love and care for one another as brothers and sisters here in this new family? Right, you were saved out of the darkness, out of the world. You were brought into the family of God. Is this not how we are supposed to love one another? Not as the world does. The world loves you as long as you play by the world's script. Right, your boss will love you as long as you do what your boss wants you to do. Your friends will love you as long as you live as your friends want you to live. But loving one another in the context of the new family is to love one another as God loves us. Paul said in Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much he loves you. Oh, my beloved, those Christians in Damascus and those in Jerusalem, they had good reason to hate Paul. But because of the love that God had poured out in their hearts, because of the forgiveness they had received through Christ in the cross, they too could forgive and they could love and then they could protect they could have sat on the side, could they not, and said, you know, it's, it's not our fault. These are the consequences of your actions, Saul. We don't hate you, but we're not going to save you. We're not going to say we don't love you, but we're not going to help you get out of Damascus or out of Jerusalem. No, they, they loved Paul as Christ loved them, and they, that was evidenced in their actions to get him out, to get him safely out of Damascus and then out of Jerusalem and to Tarsus. So how well is your love manifest for your brothers and sisters in the faith here at our church. How hard do you work? Ask yourself this. Ask the Spirit to reveal this to you. How hard do you work for the physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being of your brothers and sisters here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church? If the answer is, I don't know, then it's not a good answer. Right? If you, were to, if you were to go to Damascus and say, how well did you love Paul? They say, this is what we did. We found this really long rope, but it cost a lot of money. And we found this basket, and we put him out the window, and we got him to safety. That's how we loved him. Can you say you love others like that? Can you point to those episodes where you took your brother to the hospital, where you visited someone when they were sick, when you gave them money when they were short on cash? I'm thankful that in our current ministry context, we don't find ourselves in great physical danger because we proclaim Christ. We don't find that yet, not here and not yet. But the greater danger for all of us, and we know this, is not our physical well-being, it's our spiritual well-being. 
Sin has always been a problem since Genesis chapter 3. So next question for you. Are you faithfully watching out for and protecting the souls of your brothers and sisters here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church? Showing that extreme love that sometimes requires you to go on a rescue mission. Having the hard dialogues and the hard confrontations and sometimes the loving rebukes. James chapter 5, you know this well. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Your love is manifest to the degree that you watch out for the souls of your brothers and sisters here. It's active, it's intentional, it's costly. Years ago, a a brother in Christ came to me, not of this church, seeking counsel. His best friend, a professing Christian in his church, was addicted to pornography. He had confronted his friend on multiple occasions, but to no avail. And when he asked me what I thought he should do, I said, well, it's real simple. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 will tell you what to do. Go bring two or three people from your church and go talk to him directly. And if he doesn't listen to you and them, then go to the church and tell the church. He knew the truth of that counsel. He knows Matthew 18. And he said, but if I do that, I will break trust with him. He told me in confidence. So I went through several passages with the young man showing him that we don't have confidence with sin. We go after sin because in this young man's situation, it was a matter of life and death for him. He was truly addicted and his profession was in jeopardy. The young man that I was counseling understood what Matthew 18 required of him, that he had to go on a rescue mission if he truly loved his friend. So he got two other men from his church and they went to this young man who was addicted to pornography and they confronted him with the seriousness of the sin. They told him of the great danger that he was in living in this type of sexual morality. And then they called him to repent, to turn to Christ, and to walk in righteousness. And you know what? He did. He did. And that surprises us because that's usually not the response to Matthew 18 encounters. But he did. This young man confessed his sins. He repented. He turned and he walked with Christ. You know what his friends did, don't you? They went out and they bought a long rope and they brought the word of God. And they put that young man in a basket and they put him over that wall of the sin of pornography and they dropped him onto the ground, the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And from that point, he was able to walk in righteousness. That's real brotherly love. That's not just saying it with your mouth or saying, you know, I'll pray for you, brother. That's real love, protecting a brother or sister from the destructive power of sin. And the destructive power of sin, as we saw from Hebrews, is not just you not living well now. It has consequences for eternity, which may be eternal consequences. You not coming into the presence of God as Savior, but as judge. To remain silent, listen, listen. To remain silent when a brother or sister is in serious Willful, unrepentant sin is not loving. It's not. Now you may do it because you want to keep peace. You may do it because you don't want to embarrass them. This young man said, I don't want to break trust. He told me, if I tell someone else, then I've broken trust. You remain silent, you are hating that person. You remain silent, you may become just like the Jews in Damascus or Jerusalem, and you may be hastening their death, their eternal death coming alongside, helping them see their sin, the consequences of that's brotherly love. 
You've had them in your life, I pray. A brother or sister who was helping you and praying for you and seeing this sin that you were ensnared in, and they came to you, maybe trembling, because they didn't want to break the relationship, and they were afraid, but what did they do? They told you the truth. They brought scripture. They prayed for you, and you repented, and you turned, and oh, don't you love them? I mean, don't you love that brother? Don't you love that sister? You do. How unworthy Saul must have felt to be loved by those he had so vehemently hated. How unworthy, and yet how empowering that gospel love must have been for him to be embraced not just by Christ, but by the body of Christ, to be loved by God and loved by the church. Oh, that put him in a position of great power, my beloved, to do the great work that God had called him to do. So number one, I told you there was something in this text, is there not? It's a little bit. First, we see how true brothers and sisters in the family of God actively love one another. Number two, true brothers receive one another just as Jesus receives us into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to commune with him. So too are we to receive one another into the body of Christ, those saved by grace through faith in our Lord. Look at verse 26. And when he, Saul, had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples and they were, they were afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. I mean, the, the initial contact's not good. They hear about, they, they heard about Saul in Damascus and now he makes his way down. He's been up for three years. He makes his way down to Jerusalem and he says, hey, I'm now one of you. And they're going, oh yeah, no, no. We know you. We know you. We know what you did. And so they're, they're rightly cautious. This is not, these are, these are not being hard-hearted people. They know the testimony. He was breathing out fire, murderous threats. So they know this. Many of them have been impacted by it. And what better way, my beloved, than for the chief persecutor of the church to slip inside, right? Put on the sheep's clothing, be the wolf, come in and devour. So they're being wisely cautious. And we're thankful for that. But there was someone even wiser in their presence and that is our beloved Barnabas, the man of encouragement. We met him, remember? He's the, the Levi from Cyprus we met in Acts chapter four. He was the one that sold some property and, and, and laid it at the feet of the disciples. Remember that? Barnabas was a trustworthy man, and we know that because he takes Saul and he goes before the apostles and he presents him as a believer, as a true believer. And so in order for Barnabas to do that, he had to have some great weight. His character counted. There's an entire sermon on that, I think. Look at verse 27. But Barnabas took him, Saul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, the road to Damascus he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, we know from Paul's firsthand account of Barnabas taking him to the apostles from Galatians chapter one, we know that Saul only spoke to Peter and James, Jesus' brother. But they're, they're representing the apostles in that fashion. And Barnabas brings a testimony. And he says, listen, he's not faking it. He's not only a disciple of Jesus Christ, but Barnabas testifies to a theophany, the fact that Jesus Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so this testimony is very powerful. He's not just trying to ease the fears of the church and say he is one of us. He's saying he's not just one of us. He's also an apostle. He's an apostle, the last born apostle, equal to you, Peter. In other words, Paul did not go to Jerusalem 
in order for, to get the approval of the apostles. That approval came directly from Christ. But he did want their blessing. Right? He wanted that affirmation that he too was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He saw Christ, he heard Christ, he had been commissioned by Christ, and he wants the church in Jerusalem, he wants them to bless his going out. And they do. And they receive him as a brother in the Lord. The kingdom results for the Apostle Paul. By the way, when I say Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul, it's the same person, just so you know. And Luke actually, they go back and forth with Saul and Paul. The kingdom results for Paul were extraordinary. He went from being the chief persecutor of the church to being radically loved by God and radically loved by the church. Look at verse 28. This is what happened to him. He went, out, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem. So going in and out of the brotherhood in the church, they received him. He's out preaching and teaching. He's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. The great persecutor becomes the great proclaimer, received by God and received by the church. My beloved, to be received by God in Jesus Christ and then to be received in the context of a believing community, brothers and sisters who will know you and love you and speak truth to you and encourage you. I don't know that there's a position of power greater on earth than that person who knows they have been received and loved by God in Christ and received and loved by God through the church, through brothers and sisters, real people just like us, And when a Christian knows they're fully loved by God and they're fully loved by God's church, when they experience that real love, I'm not talking about a shallow hour and a half Sunday gathering. I'm talking about people coming in and lives being intertwined and interconnected, you being known and knowing others, living life together. When that happens, when God affirms and encourages your profession in a church, you too will become a bold proclaimer of Jesus Christ. This is not just for the Apostle Paul. He was received by God and received by the church. And when you have been received by God in Christ and received by his church, you too will become a bold proclaimer, a mighty witness for the great work of Jesus Christ in the gospel of grace. Remember where Paul is. He's in Jerusalem. This would have been the worst place for him to go, right? He goes back to the same people that he was working for, getting authority to go arrest and persecute Christians. So they're not gonna like him. And then he goes back to the same church that he was persecuting. So they're not going to like him. And yet, because he had been received by God and then received by the apostles and the church, what does he do? Verse 28, he preached boldly in the name of the Lord. It literally means he spoke freely. He spoke confidently without fear of reprisal. If there was one place Paul should have been concerned about reprisal, it would have been in Jerusalem, but he wasn't. He wasn't. Now listen, in case you have a really weird theology of Paul, that he was superhuman, he was a man. Flesh and blood, just like us. Paul Paul did not have this irrational desire to be persecuted. He didn't say, wake up in the morning and say, oh, I hope that I get lashes today. I hope that they try to kill me again today. It was really fun getting out of Damascus. Paul's a man just like us. Same longings, same desires. That desire is peace, is it not? That desire is comfort, not pain. That desire is relationships that are healthy, not those that lead to death threats. But Paul, listen, listen with all your might. Paul had experienced the love of God, and Paul had experienced the love of God's people. 
Paul was brought into communion with God in Christ, and Paul was brought into communion through Christ with God's people. In other words, he was fully loved, fully received on hev- in heaven and on earth, and therefore, Paul, like you, if you're in Christ and you're in the church, he lacked nothing. He lacked nothing. He lacked nothing. Such people, like Paul, such people like you, if you know you've been received by God and you're received into a true church, a church that loves you, such people are very, very dangerous for the world. They're very dangerous for the world. The world wants you to move along as the world goes. Those loved by God and loved by the church are able to, out of the storehouse of that love in Christ and one another, they're able to use that to go out and be brilliant testimonies for the Lord, to love and serve in radical ways, ways the world cannot understand, to boldly testify, to proclaim Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, regardless of the dangers involved. As we make our way through the rest of Acts, you have to conclude one of two things. Either Paul loves danger, he loves it. I mean, he's a thrill seeker, right? Something wrong with his hypothalamus, he's not working right, he's got a chemical imbalance, and he needs that rush. Or he's captivated by the love of God and the love of the church, and therefore he goes out boldly. He goes out boldly, as we are too. My beloved, might it be that our unwillingness, our unwillingness to be bold in our testimony and endure the suffering that Christ endured is that we're still striving to be received by the world and not Christ in the church. We're still seeking wrong approval from our friends, wrong affirmation from, from our parents, maybe an acceptance of a coworker or a fellow student or a professor or a teacher. And might it be, my beloved, that our desire to be received by the world is a result of our not being received and loved well by the church. Might it be? I'm not casting blame on anyone or any particular church, but at the extent of our receiving and our loving and our encouraging and our building up one another is a once a week gathering on a Sunday morning, I doubt very much we'll have the same affirmation and the same fortitude to be as bold as Paul to go in and out and what? And boldly proclaim a crucified Christ, even in the best situations, let alone when persecution comes. Might it be, brothers and sisters, that we don't love and serve well because we don't feel love and served here? Maybe, maybe, according to the Bible, God affirms our faith, he encourages us in love, he builds us up through the church. One of the great Works of the church is to build up one another that we might bring the most glory and honor to Christ. You are to be a builder of God's glorious kingdom. So if that faith, love, and encouragement from one another is missing or it's lacking, then the testimony, our bold testimony, will be lacking or missing as well. So here to you, counsel, if you are not actively receiving brothers and sisters in the Lord, or you're not actively being received by brothers and sisters. That means having people in your life. That means being in each other's homes. That means sharing time together, life experiences together, praying together, studying together, working together. If that's not in your life, then right now, this day, say, enough's enough. Make a change. 
Seek a person out. Seek two people out. Seek three people out and say, listen, I need you in my life. You need me in your life. You don't even know it, but you do. And we're going to walk together now in faith because that's how God created us. And that's how God saved us into his church, into true community. Now, before you give me the personal autonomy, radical individualism of the culture, say, I've tried, I can't, I know it's hard. Definitely not easy today, definitely not easy here, but guess what? You've been equipped by God to be communal people. God saved you, gave you the Holy Spirit of the Holy Triune God to become a communal person. You can engage. You can be intimately involved with people, even though you say, I don't trust people. You can be willing to be intimate and transparent, even though you may be hurt because you've been hurt before. God enables you to do that, to come into true community, to receive and be received. Why? For your good, for the good of the church, for the glory of God, for the bold proclamation of the gospel. Oh, I dare say the Apostle Paul would not have been the Apostle Paul apart from the church. Apart from the church. All right. True brothers love one another. True brothers receive one another. I'm gonna give you one more the way you like it or not. True brothers will walk together in the fear of the Lord. True brothers will walk together in the fear of the Lord. This is a summary verse. And you've probably noticed now Luke likes doing that. He's a great writer. He gives you details and he goes, I'm going to summarize. And, and verse 31 is a summary verse. And it describes for us at that moment in time the peace and the spiritual growth and the multiplication of the church. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied in other words it was a we've gone through severe persecution starting with Stephen and his his martyrdom actually going back to the apostles when they were arrested and beaten and it culminates here with the conversion and then the escape of Paul and now there's a time of peace again it's very reminiscent of the church in Acts chapter 2 post Pentecost where they had this time of peace now before you get too comfortable, we're going to have a fresh outbreak again under Herod in Acts chapter 12. So this was a time of peace. And what we see Dr. Luke doing here is establishing a template for the millennial age. The millennial age being the time of Christ's first coming and his second coming, the time that we're in right now. And in that time, what we see is peace and persecution taking place simultaneously, sometimes in the exact same place, oftentimes in different places throughout the world. So unlike our dispensational friends who believe that things will get progressively worse before Christ comes again, and unlike our post-millennial friends who believe things will get progressively better, the template we see in Acts and in the New Testament and the church throughout history has been peace and persecution happening simultaneously prior to the second coming of our Lord. And, and this is what Jesus taught. There'll be times of peace and there'll be times of persecution. But he also said this, what? I will be with you always in the midst of it. And in the end, Jesus says, I win. All right? There'll be times of peace and times of persecution. In the midst of it, I'm with you. And in the end, I win. So have great faith. Right? One author put it like this. He said, suffering is the essential mark of the church. An eschatological victory, that's an end time victory with Christ reigning. An eschatological victory realized presently by the kingship of Christ and until he returns, an eschatological victory marked by suffering. 
So we're victorious in Christ. Christ has already won. The church wins. But the mark of that victory now, until he comes, will be one of suffering. And that means, my beloved, listen, when you're experiencing times of peace, then praise God. It is a gift. Praise God for that time of peace. If you're experiencing peace, praise God and do what? Prepare for war. Prepare for war. You say, well, why should I do that? In this time of peace, why should I prepare for war? Because during the millennial age, there's gonna be peace and persecution. So persecution is just a matter of time. It's not if, it's when. So if you have times of peace, then build yourself up, be built up, that you might not only endure the persecution, but thrive in the midst of it. And if you are going through persecution right now, then you ought not worry, and you ought not bemoan, thinking something strange is happening to you because this is life in the fallen world during this time. Rather, Paul gives us, this is fantastic, the latter part of verse 31. Paul says there's a way to get through the persecution. There's a way to thrive in the midst of the peace and the persecution. Look at the latter part of verse 31. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord and, and, and understanding and experiencing the comfort of the Holy Spirit is the way to thrive in the midst of peace and persecution. In other words, the best way that we can build ourselves up, the best way that you can be built up so that in the midst of peace, you don't get lazy, and in the midst of persecution, you don't get despondent or discouraged or hopeless, it's to walk together as a church. Did you see that? Walking together, that t- the word walk is to, to journey together, to, to live together, to go through the pilgrimage together. The church walked together in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was a communal endeavor. We walked together in the midst of peace. We walked together in the midst of persecution. And in that, because of our fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit, we thrived. We were hyper conquerors in Christ. Now, if you're paying close attention, you can't read verse 31 and say, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and not have somewhat of a stop. Because most of the time when we hear the phrase, the fear of the Lord, you're not gonna think of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You know, we hear, we hear the word fear, you know, if you're afraid, you need someone to come and comfort you, right? Not the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit coming together. Um, but the church... When we hear that, when we hear the fear of the Lord as believers in Christ, we know that the fear of the Lord and the communion with the Spirit, the joy of the Spirit, actually go hand in hand, right? Just because we say we want to have the fear in the Lord and then commune with the Spirit and joy of the Spirit, who is also God, it's not a contradiction because fear for the believer, listen, Fear for the believer, fearing the Lord for the believer is not fear of punishment. It's not fear of condemnation. You can't have that if you're in Christ, right? The fear of the Lord is a fear that draws us into God. It is a fear of awe and reverence based upon the immeasurable love that God has poured out for us in his life. The fear of punishment is a fear that flows from sin. A fear of punishment is a fear that flows from sin. So if you do not know God, and it says, fear the Lord, it should be th- you should be thinking, it is a fear of punishment. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what's the first thing they did? They ran. They went and hid. Why? Because they were guilty. They were guilty before a holy God and deserving of his punishment. Sinful fear always drives 
a person away from God. Sinful fear does. Not because the fear is unfounded. If you are bathed in sin, if you've not been redeemed in Christ, then you stand guilty before a holy God. The guilt that you are experiencing is real guilt. And the consequence of that guilt is eternal judgment and damnation. So that's a real fear, fear of punishment. But this fear of punishment has no place in the Christian life. Oh, saints, listen. So many of you still read Fear the Lord and you think punishment. You think punishment, but that's not possible, right? There is no fear. There is no punishment for those who are in Christ. If you're united with Christ and he received your punishment in full, then you cannot be punished. And therefore, there's no reason to be afraid of that which you cannot experience because Christ experienced it fully for you. No condemnation for those who are in Christ, Jesus, Paul says. You've been united with Christ. Jesus paid for your sins in full on the cross. He paid for them perfectly, and therefore you've been perfectly forgiven. And therefore, you can't be judged. You can't be condemned. There should be no fear for those who have been born again by the Spirit and are united to Christ. So the work of the Holy Spirit is not to cultivate in the believer a fear of punishment. The work of the Holy Spirit is to cultivate in you a fear of the Lord that draws you to God, not pushes you away. You say, well, I don't understand why does he use the word fear? Because fear is the right word to bring God before you, listen, and reveal God to you in such a way that his magnificence and his beauty and his power and his majesty and that love that he pours out for you, a sinner saved by grace, is so overwhelming, so incredible, so earth-shattering, as we saw in our son, so leg-shaking that you say, oh, I do fear this God rightly. And in that fear, I'm drawn to him. I want to know him more. I want to see him more clearly. I want to, as we sing what? I want to love him more dearly. It is, it is a fear that captivates you and draws you in because of his goodness and his immeasurable love for you. So where am I getting this? Jeremiah 32, listen with all your might. God said, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Okay, so that relationship is established in the new covenant through Christ. They shall be my people, I will be their God. Verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may what? Fear me forever. What? What do you mean, fear you forever? How are we supposed to fear you forever? It's a good fear. Verse 40, I will put my fear, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This fear of the Lord is a fear that doesn't push you away. It drives you in. It's not a fear of punishment or dread. It's a fear grounded in who God is and even more specifically, what God has done for you in Christ. I'll give you Jeremiah again, Jeremiah 33. God said, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. That's your perfect record in Christ. They shall fear and tremble. Listen to this. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for them. Do you hear that? The fear of the Lord for the believer is a fear and trembling because God is so good to us. He's so good to us. He's so loving, he's so compassionate, he's so over the top in our prosperity that the fear of him draws us in. In other words, my beloved, true believers, we are to tremble deep in our souls because of all the good that God has done for us. All the good. The fear of the Lord is not 
a mild or passive response to the love of God. The reason it says the fear of the Lord is because it's supposed to be a quaking, a trembling of his perfect goodness towards us in Christ. And it ought to produce in the believer a response that is radical, that is earth-shaking, that is deeply internal, a quaking of the soul because you, a sinner deserving of death, have received forgiveness and radical love in Christ. Do you know that love for Jesus? Do you know that love? I've had the great blessing of presiding over quite a few weddings now. And only a handful come to mind where the groom did not see the bride coming down the aisle and he was rightly quaking. It was a fear, but not a fear of getting married. It was a fear of the incredible love that God was going to bring together in those two people. He was quaking on the inside. One young man quaking so bad I thought I was gonna pass out. It was good though, it was a good quake. It's that, that fear and that awe and that wonder as a parent when you see your child come into the world. I mean, when you literally see their head crown and you cannot believe that that life is coming by God to you. That fear, because it's so good, it causes you to shake. That's the type of fear. Now, my beloved, listen closely. I love reading books. I love reading books, but... To compare the love of reading books to the love I have for my wife or my children or my grandchildren would be ludicrous. In fact, I would go so far to say that I love my wife and my children and my grandchildren so much that compared to the love of books, it's as though I hate my books. It's as though I hate reading. In fact, you can say there's no comparison. You cannot compare the two. My beloved, listen very closely. It's the same with God, but infinitely more. Our love for God compared to our love for anyone or anything else must be so distinctly greater that you can say in your heart they are not comparable. I want you to think of the person or the thing or the hope or the dream that you love most right now and then compare that to your love for Christ and the love that he's poured out to you and if you cannot say in your heart it's not comparable, there's a problem. There's a gospel problem. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, very clearly, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying you can't follow me unless you love me most. Now in a local body of believers, when we walk together in the fear of the Lord and we seek to encourage one another to this end, then my beloved, the great hope that we have in the midst of these trials is that your circumstances, either peace or persecution, will not have sway over your heart. That's the hard part, isn't it? Your heart will soar when things are peaceful, but it's hard to soar in Christ when things are hard, when persecution comes. But when we walk together in faith, when we experience together as a body the life-altering, fearful, joyful love of God in the church... Then you'll have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You'll know the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And that love and comfort will change the way we live collectively because it changes who we are on the inside. Right? We don't, Christians don't advocate behavior modification. We, we advocate heart surgery. Right? And so when your affections change, guess what? You change. When the affections of a church change, that church 
will change. You see, it's your affections that drive all your decisions, all of your thoughts, all your behaviors, all the good that you do and the bad that you do are motivated by your heart. And so when your affections change because of the fear of the Lord, right, you're so overwhelmed with the love that God has for you that your heart has been radically changed because of him, then guess what? You're gonna change. And so sin in your life, it won't be something you simply renounce or confess before you go to bed. Sin to you will become utterly sinful. You will hate it because of the love that God has for you in Christ. Actively loving your brothers and sisters will be something you'll want to do because of the act of love that God has for you in Christ. Receiving brothers and sisters into your home, into your life, letting them in, getting into their life, you will want to do because of the immeasurable love that God has for you in Christ. Your affections will change. Thomas Chalmers, the Puritan, he rightly said it like this. He said, no one can dispossess the heart of an old affection but by the expulsive power of a new one. You can't get rid of an old affection except by the expulsive power, the extreme power of a new affection. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is that expulsive power. You want to change, my beloved? Grow in your fear of the Lord. You want to really change in how you think, those thoughts you don't want to have, those words you don't want to have come out of your mouth anymore, those relationships you don't want to be broken anymore, grow in the fear of the Lord. Be overwhelmed with who God is and what God has done in your life through Christ and your affections will change. Change your affections, you'll change your life. Guaranteed. I gotta close. There's more in this passage, by the way, but I'm gonna close. Listen, two ways for the body to grow in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. They're very basic. They're very basic, but for those of you who've ever played a sport, you, you want to get the fundamentals down, right? You want to learn how to field a ball as a second baseman in baseball? Then have about 1,000 balls hit to you, and maybe you'll get close to fielding the ball well. Number one, practice communing with God daily. Practice it. It's so simple. If you've been here for a while, you've heard from this pulpit probably 1,000 times. Be in the Word and be in prayer. Seek God's face through the Bible and seek God's face daily in prayer. So well, I know this, pastor. Do you do it? Do you do it not religiously, but do you do it because you want to draw near to God? Do you do it not because you're told to from the pulpit, but you really want to? And are you at that point where you're reading of the word of God and your prayer is not enough so you drive deeper? Say, I want to know him more, so what must I do? I must read this more. I must see him more. I must pray to him more. That's where you want to be. Oh, that's where you want to be. So why do I want to be there? Because this is God's promise to you. Listen, this is God's promise. Jeremiah 29, verse 12 and following. He says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you, God said. Then he said this, you will seek me and you'll find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. What do you want? Do you want God? Then seek him. Seek him with all your might. Seek him with all your heart. Daily be in the word. Daily be in prayer. And God says, I will come to you. I'll give you the last one. Practice communing with God communally. Practice communing with God on your own. Although you're never on your own because you're always a member of the body of Christ. And practice communing with God communally. Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. These are very practical teachings. Speaking of the body of Christ, he said, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. He's speaking now, we as in collective church, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint 
with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we will grow in our fear of the Lord the more we gather. We will grow in the comfort of the Holy Spirit the more we minister together. Doing this exact thing, that this is just one piece. Your participation in the life of the church will build you up and build the church up. That means gathering together on the Lord's Day like this and worshiping. It means enjoying a fellowship meal or praying before the service. It means gathering with your brothers and sisters, not on a Sunday, to study God's word, to pray together. It means sharing the gospel together, evangelizing together. It means making disciples together and gathering in community groups. In short, it's being a community where we minister to one another and we care for one another and we watch out for one another. My beloved, it is our fear of the Lord, a greater affection for him that will compel us to actively love one another well. It is our fear of the Lord, that greater affection for God and what God has done for us that will compel us, give us the desire to receive those we don't want to receive. It is the fear of the Lord, that heightened affection that will bring you the comfort in the Holy Spirit that you so long for in times of peace and in times of persecution. So I, I will pray this now and you, I want you to pray along with me that we as a body would strive to grow together in the fear of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come to you fully recognizing that this opportunity to, to love and to be loved, to receive and to be received and to truly walk in the fear of you and the comfort of your spirit, this opportunity for many of us is, is not embraced. We oftentimes will move through our lives individually without the body and we will not dive deep into that pool of faith and that endless gift of grace that not only calls us but equips us to live like these people, true brothers and sisters, loving one another as Christ loves us. Father, it would be evil for you to call us to that which we cannot do, but you call us to it and you equip us to do it. I pray, Father, you would give us the wisdom and that deep desire to live as your people, to live as the community we already are in Christ, to live as the family we already are in Christ. I'm so thankful for our brothers and sisters in Damascus who willingly loved Paul who was once their enemy. I'm so thankful for those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem that made sure that he got out of Jerusalem and got safely to Tarsus, that he might live and do the ministry you've called him to do. Father, do that work with us too that we might rightly protect and love one another also. Not just for our own well-being, but that we might do the work that you've called us to do. Each and every one of us given that special ministry by your grace and mercy in Christ. I praise you so much for this passage. I praise you for the jewels that are in it. I ask, Lord, that you would cause us to remember what was preached, that we might be changed by it. In Christ's holy name, amen.